If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What did Victorians get up to on the beach? When did fish and chips take off? And what's the dark story behind Punch and Judy? Well, it's time to pack up your bucket and spade because for our latest Everything You Want to Know episode, we're taking a jolly holiday back through the history of the British seaside. To answer your questions on everything from swimwear to bathing machines, Charlotte Hodgman was joined by Dr Catherine Ferry, whose books include The British Seaside Holiday and most recently Seaside 100, A History of the British Seaside in 100 Objects. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. A very timely topic today as people are kind of thinking about going off on their summer holidays. We're going to be talking about the history of the British seaside holidays. We've got lots of great questions from our listeners. I think what might be a good place to start, I've got a question from Hugh Burkmeyer on Facebook who wanted to know what were some of the milestones in the kind of the British seaside holiday? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it probably goes back later than people imagine. I, I think that probably what I'd say was the first key period, key date was probably the publication in 1752 of a book about the use of seawater as a medical cure. It was published by Dr Richard Russell, who came from Lewis. And he was important because he lived not far from Brighton. He had lots of aristocratic patrons and he sent them all to Brighton to take the waters for their health. And so in the 1700s, the, the beginnings of the seaside emerged from the desire of people who were ill to get better. 
at a very fundamental level, it's health tourism. And that's how it started out. People went to the sea to both drink and to dip in the seawater. And the success of Richard Russell's book really sort of moved that upper gear. So that's that's a key starting point, if you will. It, it wasn't the beginning, but it, it was really a, a kind of landmark that, that's quite important to know about. And then royal patronage followed on after that, not at first with the Prince Regent and Brighton, but actually King George III, he went to Weymouth in 1789 for the first time. And that was because he was suffering one of his bouts of madness and his doctors thought he should go and convalesce by the sea. And he picked Weymouth. And that was really important in actually giving validity to the seaside as a cure, but also because the the kind of court went with the king and his daily doings were published in the the press in London it gave people a sense of what it meant to be by the coast and and he obviously wasn't in his bathing machine dipping in the water all the time so there was this sense of other things going on at the seaside it made it seem attractive it gave it the royal seal of approval and then you get the 1840s railway mania this is really where the beginnings of mass tourism in a way lie because you just more people can get to the the coast and then that is in the 1870s 1871 the bank holiday act actually gives people the time to be able to go to the seaside so yes they can get there on the railways but they need the potential time off from work to be able to do so the 1871 bank holiday act starts in motion legislation that would finally come to the 1938 Holidays with Pay Act. Bank holidays weren't paid holidays. The first time that British people actually got paid holidays was just before the Second World War. So so that's another sort of key landmark in people's ability to get to the seaside and enjoy a, a summer break. Just picking up on something that you you said in that last answer about seawater and the kind of health benefits, how has thinking about that kind of changed over the centuries? In a funny way, we've kind of come full circle, I think, because the fact that people are now going back to sea swimming and it's becoming, you know, a trendy thing again, and we recognise that it has real health benefits. You know, in the 18th century, when people were doing it, when they were launching themselves into the water to try and cure everything from from kind of gout to tuberculosis, they didn't know the science behind it, but they recognised that it did have some benefit. So um, I think we kind of understand a bit more about how that works on the body now. But in a in a funny way, you know, it, it is, we, we recognise that it did, does have that, that value. People in the 18th century and, and from earlier, actually, in the 17th century, doctors were beginning to look at seawater. They started out suggesting that people go for the cold water cure. So in spa towns where you might go to, you know, Tunbridge Wells or Bath or Buxton, somewhere like that, and you take the waters. In Bath, obviously, the the spa water there is warm. And so if you wanted to set yourself up as a doctor with a new cure, the the obvious thing to say is, well, how about cold water? That's a, you know, that might have potential. But then then they alighted on seawater as not only being very cold, but also having all these minerals in it that actually could be good for you. And you might get them into your body in two ways. So you might actually go into the water. And the idea was that these minerals would 
sort of enter through your skin. And so men bathed absolutely stark naked because they thought if they had any clothing, this would stop the minerals getting into their skin. But the other way was to drink the seawater, which seems a, a ridiculously unpalatable thing to do. And thankfully, we haven't gone back to that. But there, there was this kind of notion that it flushes the system out. So, you know, there, there is that sort of detoxing element of it, which does kind of work on some levels, I suppose, but it's just pretty hideous. So what doctors said was that you should drink a pint of seawater before you then took your dip in the water itself. And some of them, realising that this wasn't very pleasant, suggested that you should have a kind of chaser with it. And the worst one I read was about new milk that you should have seawater and then milk, which sounds horrible. Gin and beer were also suggested and I think possibly might have made it a bit more pleasant. So that element of the seawater cure thankfully has been done away with and I think that that dropped off fairly quickly whereas the the immersion in the water has long been part of the seaside even when that that kind of health idea that led the first tourists to the seaside sort of began to fall away and people were going principally for their pleasure in Victorian times. The idea is still that having a dip was good for you and that you know, it's sort of reinvigorating, isn't it? The cold water on your skin, that that first, oh, when you get into the waves, you know, and that, that feeling on your skin, that's still a joyous thing. And that's been part of the, the seaside experience for a long time. But just ideas have changed about how beneficial it is or not. And we're back to the place of, of recognising that actually it is pretty good for you. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. 
Monica Del Val on Twitter wanted to know which towns became seaside holiday destinations and did those towns choose to market themselves as such? Yes, they absolutely chose to market themselves as seaside resorts. And it was kind of a mixture of places, really. Lots of them were not towns to begin with. They were small villages, sometimes quite far back from the sea. So you might get the local landowner who would see an opportunity and create this new place. So you'd get the name of the local area and then they'd tag on by the sea or on the sea. And that's why you get lots of these places, Frinton-on-Sea, Saltburn-by-the-Sea, you know, that they are new settlements sort of tacked on to existing places. Some were existing towns which had, you know, lots of seaside places have harbours, they had fishing industries, they had also trade that navigated around the coast. So somewhere like Margate had quite an important significant agricultural hinterland where they grew corn and then these the the corn was shipped to market in London on boats that were called corn hoys and it was using those corn hoys on the way back to Margate that some of the first pleasure passengers actually took the the route to the coast and that was really important because actually in the 18th century places like Margate and Brighton some of these earliest recognizable seaside resorts they were in economic trouble, really. They, they were suffering quite significant hardship. And the advent of sea bathing as this, this cure and this reason for people to come to their, their town actually saved them. You know, it gave them a new source of income. So that was really important. Other towns, other seaside places were entirely invented by the coming of the railway uh, and speculators building the railway line, building the pier, building the seafront, and the visitors came and all that sort of infrastructure followed them. And we have a question on Instagram. When would you say was the golden age of the British seaside resort? That's interesting because it kind of depends on what sort of golden age you're thinking about in terms of visitor numbers or in terms of sort of investment and that kind of thing. And and so maybe there are a few really that are sort of heydays. I guess nostalgically when we're looking back to thinking about what we consider the great British seaside, I suppose probably we're thinking back to the post-war period, the 1950s when People finally have have got their paid holiday. More people are in full-time employment. So there's just the the potential for everyone to go away is there. And we haven't yet discovered cheap foreign sunshine. So people are going to the seaside because that is where you go. You know, that is the tradition for holiday making. And people after the, the war were so desperate to get back to the seaside, see the sea, have a break, you know, just slough off all that war weariness and that continued through into the 1950s and into the early 60s really that there was this kind of I I think that is the vision our golden age vision of, of the kids on the on the sands with their buckets and spades and all the things that we recognise as being seaside traditions that a lot of them were were established well before that, but they all sort of come together in this vision of the post-war holiday. Though, in a way, the 1930s could also be described 
as a, a golden age. And, and if you just look at the kind of railway advertising, the posters of that era, that encapsulates that sort of new fashion for sunbathing, for being in the open air. The, the commercial artists who painted these posters, they're all sort of sun-drenched and beautiful people. It feels like this wonderful and probably wasn't the way it looked in the posters, you know, but there was a huge amount of investment in the 1930s. People in power recognised leisure as a new force in society, that people were increasingly having more leisure time because of changes in in the workforce and and a, a, a growing standard of living among the middle classes. So, the resorts around the coast were competing with each other to have the biggest open-air pool, the biggest theatres, the most immaculate gardens, all the activities, the tennis courts on the front, lots of open-air things, the flashiest pier buildings. You know, There was just this sort of sense of opportunity in the 1930s, and you see that in all the kind of streamlined, modern, Art Deco-style buildings of that era as well. So I think that represents another golden age as well. We have a question from George Haig on Facebook who wanted to know, how was the class system reflected in the seaside holiday? Did classes mix or were there distinct locations for sort of different people in in society? There was a bit of both, actually, because classes did mix on the beach. In the Victorian era, where society was very segregated according to class, the beach was one of those places that was just hugely democratic because it was a free-for-all. Everybody could go there and you could be a wealthy factory owner sitting on the beach next to, you know, one of your mill workers or something. There was no differentiation on the sands and that did cause some sort of moral issues in terms of people worrying, the kind of moral middle classes worrying about what the standards of behaviour of their social inferiors and there were sort of letters to the press about people bathing in the wrong places or not wearing their appropriate clothing or, you know, this kind of worry about this kind of mixing because it was relatively unusual. But having said that, where people stayed... And the difference of whether you stayed or not, that was all class determined. So if you're a working class person, you're probably just going to be going for a lot of the country. You're going to be going to the the seaside for a day trip, you know, a, a single solitary day during your year for a Victorian worker. Unless perhaps if you live in one of the cotton towns and you can partake in the Wakes Weeks traditions, you know, where the factory shut down for an entire week and the whole town almost decamps to somewhere like Blackpool. And there are saving schemes in place there and they're relatively well-paid workers. And so that's slightly different. But for a lot of working people, it's it's a single day trip. So, so you're not expecting to stay over. Whereas at the top of society, the sort of wealthiest, titled, upper-middle-class people, they're going to be staying in hotels, not just any hotels, they might be staying in the grand hotels, which have doormen on them to keep the riffraff out. You know, they're very much sort of luxury enclaves, and they have names like the grand, but also the palace the imperial, the queens, you know, it's written in in big lettering on the architecture of these buildings about who they are for, you know, and, and you, you would know as a, as a working class person that that was not for you. But there were also 
locations within the resorts that were that were clearly differentiated between class in terms of if you think of all of the main resorts they all have a kind of posher end when the railways bring the masses to the main resorts and the railway ends very close to the beach that's when the the wealthy people start moving a bit further away they can pay to have a carriage ride from the station to their hotel whereas the working people would just sort of disgorge onto the the beach and the seafront so brighton has hove margate has Posha Cliftonville up on the cliff where the very smart hotels are built. There's this wonderful, I think it's from um, the Queen magazine, where it tells you to pack however many outfits it is if you're a lady going to Cliftonville because it's essentially like one big fashion show and you you know you'll you'll be expected to change all the time and and there are particular times of the day where you might be seen on the lawns same at Hove same at Scarborough Scarborough's South Bay was posher than Scarborough's North Bay in terms of the accommodation on offer and either side of Blackpool you had St Anne's, Lytham and Fleetwood, which is where you stayed if you had more money. You wouldn't have stayed in Blackpool. So so there are these very clear and well-understood class differences as well as uh, as the sort of free-for-all of the beach. So uh, kind of uh, an odd mixture. When do we sort of see the beginnings of the kind of the holiday camps, you know, and those, that kind of much cheaper accommodation? When do we sort of see that popping up? That's Victorian as well. It dates from the 1890s. The first holiday camp, recognisably so, was built on the Isle of Man by a couple, Joseph and Elizabeth Cunningham, who ran a camp for boys linked to the Florence Institute in in Toxteth in Liverpool. Uh, and they did this for a couple of seasons as a sort of charitable endeavour, but but they were actually losing the Institute money, so their services were were done away with. But they, they saw a business opportunity, so they moved to the Isle of Man, permanently set up this camp. They only allowed young men who had to sign the pledge not to touch alcohol and not to gamble whilst they were in the camp. They put them all up in bell tents. So, you know, these circular sort of army surplus tents. But the important thing was that they they had the, the, the element of camaraderie that was to become really crucial to holiday camps. And they gave them a sort of hotel service in terms of their eating and their entertainments. So that, that was the first sort of recognisable holiday camp. And there were sort of developments between that period, the 1890s. Cunningham's got huge. They could, I think they could accommodate about 1,700 men in a single sitting in the dining hall. So it was a it was a big enterprise. They had their own farms producing the 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 food for the camp. They had all these sort of entertainments on offer. Then there were sort of more cooperative union camps that that emerged in the, from the Edwardian period into the 1920s. So the idea of if you were in something like the, the civil service union, you could contribute to a fund and then the union would set up this camp on your behalf and then you would be able to go and stay there. And the National Association of Local Government Officers, they set up a, a camp as well. And there were cooperatives, Coventry Cooperative set up its own camp for its 
members in Rill on the on the uh, North Wales coast. So that was sort of trundling along. It's in the 1930s that you get the big commercial camps, and that's the period where actually the the, the press described it as a new social phenomenon. This idea of of people coming together on their holidays in these designated resorts, outside resorts, where everything is laid on. The point is, it's an all inclusive price, and they're offering a kind of uh, an affordable luxury and they're offering a kind of community element to it where you go and you take part and it's it's quite an active holiday that absolutely suited the sort of leisure priorities of the era. And Sandy Sisley one on Instagram wanted to know when did fish and chips become such a kind of big pull at the seaside? Oh, yeah. Where would we be without seaside fish and chips? I know you can have them anywhere else, but they just taste better sort of with the the wind whipping your hair when you're sitting on the beach and, and they've got the smell of salt and vinegar <laughs> wafting around. It's, the seagulls. Uh, yeah, that's a downside. That's definitely a downside. <laughs> it's true. But um, well, fish and chips is two separate culinary elements isn't it and and actually fried fish was apparently introduced to this country uh, as early as the 16th century by Jewish immigrants and whether you ask a Frenchman or a, a Belgian you'll get a different answer about who invented the chip because they will both claim to have done so the the fried potato in the its chipped form but the point was that it was us that put the two things together in the 1860s and that relied on new steam trawling to get the fish to market commercial ice making um, fast railway transport that actually took the fishing quantity to the capital, which is where it developed as a sort of a, a new street food, and then bizarrely sort of went back to the coast from whence it came. And this this idea of fish and chips as being the ultimate kind of convenience food is very well established by the late 19th century. By 1910, there's something like 25,000 fish and chip shops nationwide. And the biggest ones of those were at the seaside because the sheer numbers of people who were visiting increasingly from that point onwards. I think Margate had one of the biggest fish and chip shops in the country in the 1930s. So, yeah, it's it's a long-standing tradition, just part of that expectation of what you're going to find at the seaside. Another popular question that's come up, Amy Fredrickson on Instagram and a couple of other people wanted to know a bit more about Punch and Judy and the history behind that. And also, perhaps it'd be quite nice to broaden that out to... What did people do at the seaside? You know, has that changed very much since since the kind of Victorian era? Well, Punch and Judy was one of the sort of key entertainment elements of a seaside holiday. But Mr Punch is a puppet who has been in existence for a long time because he really came out of the Commedia dell'arte tradition in Italy. And Samuel Pepys went to see one of the first Punch and Judy, well, it was only Mr. Punch at that point, but he he saw the character, I think it was called Pulcinello. <laughs> My Italian is not perfect, but I, I think that he was a marionette at that time. So he was a stringed puppet, but discernibly that character that would go on through over time to develop into Mr. Punch. We kind of gave him this eccentric jester outfit and sort of made that his own and we gave him his wife Judy but not until the middle of the Victorian period but it was the progress of Punch as a puppet being used in travelling fairs and then as 
traveling fairs then moved to the the coast with the people you know they they followed where the the business was where the big markets were and they were at the seaside so mr punch kind of got on the railways with everybody else and and, and went off to the coast and other entertainers did exactly the same thing so all those kind of itinerant the kind of organ grinders with their monkeys they all shifted off to the the coast as well and and lots of open air entertainers minstrels and later in the 19th century pierros they were sort of troops of actors singers comedians who did their acts on the sands and for a period from about the 1890s to 1930s they wore this distinctive piero uniform with the the sort of pointy hats and the pom-poms they were there every summer season and then overnight they became unfashionable and they sort of disappeared but outside entertainment was a big thing it was much cheaper but people expected to go to the theater to go and see concert parties to go and see sort of music hall variety so there were numerous different types of theaters at the seaside there were also lots of venues that could offer a kind of rainy day option which obviously considering where we live is pretty crucial so things like winter gardens and aquariums became very popular from the 1870s onwards so that might be a mixture of kind of rational entertainments to start with go and look at the fish go and look at the plants but gradually they would be filled with your normal sort of paying entertainers so so they'd have shows they'd have variety but they might have dancing as well and then when in the Edwardian period around 1909 roller skating became a craze so all these places that were already there laid down roller skating rinks and everybody started roller skating around these places so the point about seaside entertainment that was that it just it it was fueled by novelty so whatever the latest craze was that's what they adopted you could see that in the architecture of seaside resorts, the kind of different buildings that were put up at different times to cater for different trends. But the theatres and, and the open air element were, were, were constants, really. And just moving on to some of the things that perhaps we might associate with the seaside today, like sunbathing and how fashions, you know, seaside attire have changed. When do we sort of see people kind of going to the beach? When was the kind of tanning heyday? Well, the the era of sunbathing was definitely between the wars. There is this kind of myth that Coco Chanel invented sunbathing, but she was sort of contributing to something that was happening already, really, because Victorians didn't appreciate a suntan at all. And it was linked in the, the kind of popular consciousness to the idea of manual labour because people who worked outside in the fields, they were the ones who got a tan and they got a tan because they were working. Um, so if you were not a worker and you had the leisured lifestyle, then you had the pale skin to match that. And that was a status marker. But that did begin to change by the end of the Victorian period because actually by that point, the workers were stuck inside in factories for many, many hours a day, barely seeing the sunshine. They were the ones that were now very pasty and malnourished and ill. So that shift was also sort of amplified by the fact that leisured people were now partaking in in sports like tennis and cycling new fads that were coming in that were were happening in the outdoors so it was actually beginning to be okay for sort of young men and women to go out and catch the sun a little bit so that was sort of beginning and and the idea that 
sunshine and UV light could be beneficial in the in the treatment of tuberculosis. That was already coming in in the, the sort of end of the 19th century as well. So the two things kind of came together in the 1920s and 30s and Coco Chanel as a trendsetter, a fashion leader, sort of put the stamp of glamour on sunbathing. And, and as the, the French Riviera began to be popular with the bright young things of the 20s, you know, the fast set who would go and, and lay in the sun at Jouan les Pins or Caen, slathered in olive oil in order to catch the sun. And, and, and the reports of these people coming back and this being the new trend, that sort of filtered down the, the social classes so that sunbathing was the big new thing in the 1930s. And you see that reflected in what people wore on the beach and particularly in their bathing costumes. And the idea that a bathing costume could now be an item of apparel to wear in public because the Victorians used their bathing costumes for bathing only while you still had these bathing machines like beach huts on wheels that were sort of used as, as mobile changing rooms there wasn't much option to to have very fashionable bathing costumes because, I mean, they did exist, but only for the the very wealthiest. People just didn't really see you in your bathing costume and, and they weren't meant to see you in your bathing costume. Whereas when you're trying to get a tan, you want to maximise the the amount of flesh that's on display, then then your bathing costume becomes your, your best friend and you have these wonderful designs. They're much shorter in the legs they have these sort of laced up elements in the side sometimes so that you get maximized tanability there so the design of the bathing costume is profoundly affected by the fashion for sunbathing and generally by the 1930s people were wearing a lot less clothes on the beach anyway victorians didn't have what we'd consider to be leisure wear they just wore their sunday best to go to the seaside because it was an occasion, it was an outing, a day trip, so you wore your best clothes. Of course, you didn't have that many clothes anyway to choose from, and so they just put them all on, and you see them looking completely covered, and you just think how hot they must have been. By the 1930s, there is this leisure where men might wear white slacks and sort of stripy blazers and women had summer dresses that were much lighter and they might buy them specially for their seaside trip. And so that's a that's a that's quite a change and it has to do partly with sort of the increasing ready-to-wear market as well as people making their own clothes. That was Dr Catherine Ferry. Catherine's most recent book, Seaside 100, The History of the British Seaside in 100 Objects, is published by Unicorn. If you'd like to submit questions for a future Everything You Wanted to Know episode, then be sure to follow History Extra on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, where you can find callouts for future episodes. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. 